Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is Bach Week this week, and I'm super excited to share with you a story uh, about Bach. Maybe some things that you haven't realized about him before, um, a little different perspective about him. This is how we're kicking off our Bach Week celebrations. Andy and I are super excited about all of the things we're going to share with you this week about Johann Sebastian Bach. His commemoration day is this week on Wednesday, the 28th. So lots of great stuff happening this week. Tune in uh, every day for the coffee hour and we'll be bringing you a little different aspect of his life and his music and his service to the church um it's going to be a really really great time thanks to concordia university wisconsin for your support of the coffee hour you can find out more about concordia university wisconsin at cuw.edu Joining me today is Chaplain Brian Hamer, chaplain in the U.S. Marine Corps um, and a, a, a music nerd in the, in the very best sense possible. Chaplain Hamer, thanks so much for joining me today. Sarah, it is a pleasure to be with you and our listeners and always happy to talk to a hymn nerd during Bach Week. <laughs> this is the epitome of so many things. Uh, it is it is a really great week. Um, and I'm really excited to dig into this topic with you today. Obviously, it's about J.S. Bach, but we're, we're not really doing the typical conversation about him today. So you recently wrote an article for the Easter 2021 Logia Journal on Bach and the relationship between popular music, secular, or popular music, sacred music, and high art music. So, first of all, before we dig into some of the topics in this article, what inspired you to write this article? Well, Sarah, believe it or not, in the primary resources for the study of J.S. Bach, there's a wonderful book called The Bach Reader which simply has documents actually written and known during Bach's lifetime. And I've always been intrigued by the fact that when he went to Leipzig in 1723, and he served St. Thomas Leipzig from 1723 all the way until his death in 1750. So it's a wonderful tenure there in Leipzig. Did you know that he was actually their third choice for the job? I didn't actually know that. <laughs> Yeah, and I always, always I, I just had to dig into what was the church council thinking. So that was actually my starting point. Why would Bach be third in line? <laughs> they wanted George Philip Telemann, also an important composer, yeah. um, but he got a raise and didn't want to leave his post. <laughs> then they asked somebody named Johann Grapner, but he could not obtain his dismissal because you worked for the ruler at the time. So then they effectively settled for J.S. Bach, and from their minutes, it actually said, as they were offering him the job, if Bach were chosen, Telemann, in view of his conduct, might be forgotten. Well, this is just ridiculous, the way they're treating Telemann and the way, the way they're treating Bach, and you wonder why he stuck around for 27 years. But in contrast to the hiring procedure, within his 14-point contract, for Leipzig 1723. We read the following words, which I managed to expand into a 5,000-word article. That's a good thing to do during COVID, right? <laughs> Take one sentence and expand it. And we read, in order to preserve the good order in the churches, so arrange the music that it shall not last too long and shall be of such a nature as not to make an operatic impression 
but rather incite the listeners to devotion. And I was always struck by that phrase and wanted to dig into what does it mean not to make an operatic impression? Mm -hmm. That is a bit of a striking phrase, especially uh, thinking about Bach and his work, um, how that phrase would actually tie into what he did with church music and what he did um, at St. Thomas's. So how do we generally define sacred music, popular music, and high art music? What are, what are the differences between those three categories? In sacred music, of course, picture yourself in a church, possibly a Lutheran church. You would have, of course, a text, and a text that proclaims Christ, and it's pretty well subject to the same scrutiny that you would give a sermon, except, of course, it's going to be much shorter. To make it music, you have to give it some sort of tune. And for us in the Lutheran Church, normally that means the chant or the chorale, which are distinctly churchly forms of composition. So any given Sunday, much of what you hear from the pastor, in peace let us pray to the Lord, that's going to be based on chant. And much of what we would sing as a congregation will be based on, but not exclusively, but largely based on the chorale. And then you're not going to put it wherever you want it. I found this great hymn, so we have to sing it this Sunday. No, don't do that. You go to the church or you go to the minor festival, say this past Sunday. Some churches had the eighth Sunday after Trinity. Others had the ninth Sunday after Pentecost. Others went with St. James the Elder Apostle and you build it into the church here, and voila, there's sacred music, and I cannot stress enough, it has its own identity, because the Lord has blessed us with so many composers, and the depth of sacred music will never be fathomed in one lifetime. That stands in contrast now to popular music, by which I mean popular secular music, and high art music. Now, Sarah, are you old enough to remember going to the mall on a Saturday afternoon and flipping through LPs? Not quite. <laughs> and, not quite. Well, for the old guy on the line here, <laughs> especially back in the 1980s, a rainy Saturday afternoon where I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, could be redeemed by going and flipping through. Just think in terms of maybe a 12-inch by 12-inch CD, and they're in a large bin. And you walk in to the record store, and of course, most of them would be for popular music. And on these large 12 by 12 cardboard covers, you would have, of course, images of the performer. So if you went to the popular music bin, arranged from A to Z, what do you think? Would they be arranged by performer or by composer in popular music? Oh, performer. Performer, absolutely. Performer, A to Z from ABBA to ZZ Top, your secret <laughs> childhood crush. And of course, on these uh, CDs, uh, sorry, I almost said CD, I just dated myself. On these LP covers, you'd have pictures of the performer. And so they were inevitably, with some exceptions, young, good-looking, often scantily clad. That is popular art. It is all about the performer. And again, the cutoff age for most of them was right around uh, 30 I'm surprised that many of them are still going. What can I say? You enjoyed some of these groups in the 80s. Now enjoy them while they're in their 80s, but I think they've <laughs> lost a little bit of their step. So popular art focuses on the new. What's the top 40 this week? What's the number one single this week? It does not encourage reflection, and it is pursued largely to kill time. Popular music is the very definition of ephemeral. Now, in that same record store, 
you would find a much smaller classical bin that was not arranged by, at least primarily by performer, but rather by composer. Mm-hmm. So in the classical world, but in the broad sense of Baroque, classical, romantic, and so forth, A to Z, from Albanoni to Zelenka. Mm-hmm. And this is based, Sarah, on the almost I mean, the irrefutable yet simplistic logic. If composers don't write anything, then we won't have anything to sing or perform or conduct. Is that fair enough? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so we go to the <laughs> composers, and then get, get that is the only place in the record store where men, and this was not uncommon at the time, men, bald men in their 60s could be on the cover. And it could be Bach or Beethoven, portraits of their later life. It could be the conductor, George Schulte, Leonard Bernstein, or whatnot. And they're on the cover, not because we necessarily want to look at them, but because that name gets our attention. And it says on this album, we're going to find something that is timeless, that encourages reflection, and can be pursued again and again with deliberation. Mm-hmm. That's interesting to put those those categories together. I mean, they make sense. I'd never really thought about them this way until reading through your article and listening to you uh, discuss them right now, but it, it makes a whole lot of sense. Do we ever see these lines blurring or crossing anywhere in, in our daily lives? Absolutely. And I fear, Sarah, that they have crossed so much that we barely notice anymore. Hmm. So just to give one example, and I offer many more in the article. 1969, June 15th or 16th, about two hours north of where I am sitting at Naval Base San Diego, on a Monday night service, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California, a young musician named Marcia Stevens and her sister, sang as part of a Monday night service, the contemporary praise song for those tears I died, still floating around and being sung today. And that is generally considered on a hot June summer evening in 1969 to be the launch of CCM, contemporary Christian music. And of course, everything was pulled directly from what was happening in popular culture at the time, such as we need to have a handheld microphone, The performers are inevitably young and good-looking, and absolutely, positively, every single time without fail, they have to stand on what they would call the stage, what you and I would call the chancel or altar area, and they have to use the guitar or maybe a pre-recorded accompaniment today. So that crossover then from let's use what the secular pop artists are using, let's give it a text that, that text does talk about Jesus, you know, come to the waters and for those tears I died and so forth. And voila, what is now a billion dollar industry has come to be. And it may be past its heyday, which I think it peaked in the, the 1990s, but it's still going strong. If I could read a quick quote, Sarah, from a conservative evangelical scholar named T. David Gordon in his book, Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns. Mm-hmm. This is what he, this is his description of what happens when the guitars come out. I could read just a few sentences. When the guitars come out and we sing the contemporary songs with repeated refrains between the verses, the sanctuary takes on another aura. It gets funky. Mm-hmm. At this point, middle-aged women start to get down with Jesus, swaying and singing as they did 30 years ago at Grateful Dead concerts. 
people who would find it odd if we repeated the Gloria Patri or doxology four times don't find it odd that we repeat the refrains to these choruses numerous times, even if they are less theologically significant. And he has much more to say. But my caution is this. Whenever we cross that line, especially between sacred music and popular music, we may be losing track of the gospel itself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And of course, this being Bach Week, we are going to connect all of these things about the differences between these styles of music to the life and the work of Johann Sebastian Bach. But we are going to do that on the other side of this break. We do need to take a quick break right now, but we will be right back. We're talking with Chaplain Brian Hamer during Bach Week. Uh, you're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. We're celebrating Bach Week this week, all about Johann Sebastian Bach, his life, his legacy, his work, his service to the church, all of these things. I'm very excited about this, and I hope uh, you are too. We're going to be doing this all week, so be sure to tune in to the Coffee Hour all week for different perspectives on his life. Today, I'm talking with Chaplain Brian Hamer, a chaplain in the U.S. Marine Corps, um, about J.S. Bach's work um, and and specifically some of the, the different angles about his work in uh, in sacred music and maybe in uh, secular music as well, which I'm not sure a lot of people realize that. So before we went to break, we were talking about the differences between sacred music, popular music, and high art music. Um, and now Chaplain Hamer um, in Bach's life, where where do we see these things? Where do we see popular music or sac- obviously sacred music, high art music? How does this all connect to Bach's, Bach's life? Sarah, we see the sacred music, of course, typically on a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon. At any of the, believe it or not, um, he actually worked with four churches in Leipzig, and the, the workload given to him from 1723 to 1750 was nothing short of phenomenal. Every Sunday, plus the minor festivals, and in many cases, responsible for a cantata, the key word today, it's about 16 to 24 minutes of music for a handful of singers in various sizes and for a handful of instrumentalists, and always based on the gospel lesson for that particular Sunday. I think those cantatas are the key for people who want to dig into his sacred music. Footnote, the passions were performed a handful of times in his life. Hmm. The cantatas were performed over and over again through the church year. So there's his massive output of sacred music. Perhaps lesser known, however, and that was important to my article, is his work in high art music that did not have a sacred text. Are you a coffee drinker, Sarah? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Well, you will be pleased to know that uh, Bach actually wrote a coffee cantata, but you would not hear it on Sunday morning in in Leipzig. (laughs) You would hear it, say, on Friday night, down the corner, down the street, 
and around the corner at something called Zimmerman's Coffee House, which wasn't just for coffee, but also an artistic venue of the day. And they are remarkably similar in their music, not in their text, of course, but the music of his various secular cantatas, especially the coffee cantata, listening to it from a distance. And I know this is sacrilege. If you don't know German, you pretty well have to ignore the text. <laughs> Listen to the compositional style. It just says Bach. So one scholar, Christoph Wolf, says there is no principal genre difference between secular and sacred cantatas. The ready adaptability at sacred cantatas allowed the music of many secular cantatas, a permanent place, albeit with different texts. So different texts, but the music is the same. Now, what does that mean? It's tempting to say, well, if Bach used some of the same music at the coffee house that he used in church, why can't we just uncritically import secular music styles into our sanctuary? And the answer for my money is the church was the dominant voice in music at the time. So in Bach's day, it's simply how they wrote good music. Since the 1960s, I know many of us, myself included, have been born in or since the 1960s, the church is no longer the dominant voice in music. Again, think of going into that record store where most of it is popular, a smaller portion is classical. Sometimes there's a third room or a third bin for opera, but it's hard to find sacred music. And when I was living in New York, I once tried to sell, I had duplicate CDs of sacred music from St. Paul's London. So I tried to sell one for a couple bucks and they gave it back to me at the CD store. And they said they didn't know how to classify it, so they wouldn't buy it. <laughs> That's the way it goes. <laughs> we are simply not the dominant voice. Now, relate this back to that contract and that phrase, not to make an operatic impression. The one place in Leipzig, the one artistic venue that we do not re read about Bach ever attending is the Leipzig Opera House. Hmm. Living in Leipzig, he probably knew about the Leipzig Opera House, and he probably drove past it in his carriage uh, from, from time to time. But he would not be involved there. And again, try to put aside what we think of opera today, where it really is you know, a high art form with multiple intermissions and some long evenings. But at the time, I don't think the contract, not to make an operatic impression, was worried primarily about the Leipzig Opera House because it was only 30 years old in 1723. What they were worried about would be Italian opera and key words. I remember, remember I said that popular music is new. It offers no reflection, and it's pursued to kill time. Briefly put, Italian opera, as they would have known in 1723, was sexy and seductive and notorious for having drunken brawls before and after the opera. <laughs> Gee, we don't want to make that impression in church, do we? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then how how is Bach's art, high art music, or his music as high art, how is it able to, um, I don't know, transcend some boundaries, able to go places where sacred music may not be able to go, like your CD, into uh, the, the CD store? How is his music as as a high art able to, to go places uh, that sacred music maybe wouldn't be able to go? If you picture two overlapping circles, 
one for church music, now overlapping with that, high art music. What might you put in that middle section where they overlap? I put the artistic standard. So, for instance, when I graduated from seminary in 1995, I found out I was going to Christ the King Lutheran Church in Riverview, Florida, <laughs> believe it or not, <laughs> after the call service. Longstanding tradition, forget Google Maps, pull out the old Rand McNally <laughs> Atlas, right? And somebody ran up to me, here's the Atlas, and they had found Riverview, Florida, and they pointed out, get this, how close it was to the University of South Florida. Well, what on earth does that have to do with anything? I just graduated from seminary. And this person, and I agree, wisely knew that if you want, if you need some musical help, you're looking for an organist, you need a trumpet player for Easter Sunday, there's the University of South Florida. And that turned out to be a wonderful partnership. But what do they have in common? It's the artistic standard that music is high art. And music is led by those who are skilled. So that high art for J.S. Bach has led his music outside the church, still in the church, of course. But that's where it goes into the concert hall. It goes into uh, iTunes and Napster and around the world. One of my favorite anecdotes that I mentioned in the article is a choir called the Robert Shaw Chorale that took a tour into communist Russia in 1962. Think in terms of Russia, 1962. Post-Stalin, post-Lenin, but still communist Russia, where the communists, with a low regard for human life and their high value on power, controlled the artist, even drove a Igor Stravinsky, for instance, who we celebrate 50 years after his death uh, this year, to go compose for Hollywood. So he went from high art to more uh, pop art. But the Robert Shaw Chorale went on tour in 1962. One of the many works they took was the Bach B minor mass. So that's chorus and orchestra, Lord have mercy, glory be to God on high, Nicene Creed, Lamb of God, holy, holy. And they say, and this is from witnesses now, that audiences remain in the hall for up to an hour, often still standing. Soviet radio, radio broadcast the music, including a broadcast of 10 minutes of applause at the end. And you're the one in radio. I assume you normally don't broadcast applause <laughs> for 10 minutes at a time. Not usually, no. That's just one, <laughs> and that's just one anecdote, Sarah. Mm-hmm. And that is why Bach has been called since 1823, so it's 100 years after he took the job in Leipzig. He is called the fifth evangelist by the artistic merit of his music. Bach goes where the preacher cannot go, to the concert hall. And I'm happy to say he's in no danger of oblivion anytime soon. Absolutely not. So you mentioned earlier that um, that his his sacred cantatas, secular cantatas, uh, if you don't know German, they, they kind of overlap. They sound the, the musical structure is about the same. But what sets the sec or the sacred cantatas apart? Uh, what sets them apart as as such a, a glorious uh, form of sacred music that we have today? If you could line up all the great composers with which the Lord has blessed us. Most composers and most musicians today would agree that Bach is God's greatest gift. Now, maybe for different reasons. Again, the unbeliever would simply have the artistic merit. The Lutheran musician, especially the Lutheran church musician, would also think about the theology and how it fits seamlessly with the church here. If I could just read a brief quote from the conductor John Elliott Gardner, who's been conducting Bach's sacred music for probably 50 years, and finally at about age, oh, 78 
finally settled down to write a book about Bach's sacred music. He has a following quote. Mozart shows us the kind of music we might hope to hear in heaven, but it is Bach making music in the castle of heaven who gives us the voice of God in human form. Again, making music in the castle of heaven, Bach gives us the voice of God in human form. It is the living voice of the gospel where the music perfectly and beautifully paints the text. Mm -hmm. So wrapping this up, because we are almost out of time, sadly, going back to, to that original quote about his uh, Bach's contract with uh, Leipzig to be cantor at, at St. Thomas's. How did how did he ultimately fulfill this quote? Uh, not to make an operatic impression, uh, but to incite listeners to devotion. You always know with Bach's music, whether we could be in Leipzig in the 1700s or as we hear it today, that it is pointing to the cross of Christ. His sacred music often has in the manuscript at the beginning in the name of Jesus. At the end, it often has SDG for Soli Deo Gloria, that is glory to God alone, that from first to, to last, and we could talk on and on mm -hmm. about cross painting of how he works the cross into his music. It, 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 it's through everything that he does in his sacred music. If I could just read the collect as the prayer for the commemoration of J.S. Bach, and I take a couple of the key words out of here as a conclusion. We pray on July 28th, Almighty God, beautiful in majesty and majestic in holiness, you have taught us in Holy Scripture to sing your praises and have given to your servant, Johann Sebastian Bach, grace to show forth your glory in his music. Think of those adjectives, beautiful in majesty majestic in holiness. As it goes for God Almighty, so it goes for the music of Johann Sebastian Bach to show forth the glory of God in his music as opposed to the glory of man. And then we pray, continue to grant this gift of inspiration to all your servants who write and make music for your people. And that includes singing a chorale any given Sunday or part of your devotional life. And then the result, that with joy, we on earth may glimpse your beauty and at length know the inexhaustible riches of your new creation in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So not to make any secular impression, but to know that in this music, we are glimpsing the beauty of the ceaseless worship of the Lamb. Amen to that. Oh, what a good way to kick off Bach Week, Chaplain Hamer. This it's it's been such a joy to have you on uh, to talk about Bach's uh, life and his music. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Coffee Hour. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. I'm sorry this topic was too highfalutin for Andy to join us, but do give him my regards. <laughs> I will do that. <laughs> You've been listening to the Coffee Hour. It is Bach Week. Tune in for more Bach all week this week and, of course, on your podcasting app. You're listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Anywhere.